Curiosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kerland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. This week, we're talking with Dr. Steve Nail. Dr. Nail was my vet for well over 30 years. He retired in 2020, just as the lockdowns began for the coronavirus. I think his timing was excellent in terms of picking a good time to retire. But I have to say, I do, I do miss his visits. When Steve came to the barn, whenever he could, he always made extra time to talk about training and talk about all the new updates in veterinary medicine. And I've missed those conversations. So I thought this podcast would give us a great excuse for a visit. So we spent an afternoon in conversation. And one of the things that makes this conversation with Steve especially interesting for me is he met Peregrine well before I started clicker training. When he first met him, Peregrine was not by any stretch of the imagination an easy horse to work with. Peregrine's stifles locked in both hind legs and that created a whole cascade of problems. I've seen lots of horses with stifle issues, but I have never encountered a horse whose stifles locked as hard and as frequently as Peregrine's locked. And what that created were a whole lot of certainly behavioral issues, but also health-related issues. So what was related, what was caused by stifles, and all the tension that was associated with them, and what were just extra headaches, you know, who knows at this point. But one of the many stumbling blocks we encountered was Peregrine had a really problematic gelding. This was well before Dr. Nail met him. It was another vet who did the, the gelding. And I'll, I'll spare you all the bloody details because they were actually very bloody. The, the gelding went all wrong. The vet couldn't get Peregrine to stop bleeding. He had to tranquilize him, anesthetize him twice, and the, it was just a mess. And the whole upshot of that was Peregrine developed an internal abscess. And the upshot of that was that he developed adhesions. Apparently, there was enough scar tissue that it started to interfere with his digestive system. And the upshot of that was Peregrine started to have frequent gas colics. So during his three-year-old year, he was colicking, oh, he was, basically, after his 12th colic, I stopped counting. I I lost track completely uh, over how how many farm calls we had to come help me out because Peregrine was having yet another colic. And it was during this stretch that Dr. Nail met Peregrine for the first time. So he saw him when his stifles were really at their worst. We told the story of that first visit during our last conversation. Dr. Nail was new to the practice. He had just moved to the area from Indiana, so he was riding along with one of the other vets in the practice while he got to know the area. 
So he came along on the farm call when Peregrine was colicking yet again, and they decided they needed to get a nasal tube down him, which was going to be a struggle because for Peregrine, it was always a struggle trying to get the nasal tubes down. This was a horse who not only had experience with nasal tubes because of the colics, but he also had experience with them because at that period of time, tube worming was a routine practice. So Peregrine has taught me many important lessons throughout his lifetime. And one of the things he taught me was to listen to him. Whenever he resisted hard against something, there was always a reason. There was always an underlying physical issue. We just had to look for it. And in this case, it turned out he had a good reason to be fighting against the nasal tube. I'm not sure which of the vets suggested that they try the smaller tube that they use for ponies, but I remember that it was Dr. Clonch who went out to the truck for it, which gave Peregrine a bit of a break. And when they, when Dr. Clonch came back and they tried the smaller tube, it slid right down Peregrine's throat. So what Peregrine had been trying to tell us was they were trying to force a tube that was just too big down his throat. Now, no wonder, no wonder he was resisting. So anyway, problem solved. It was a mild gas colic. He was okay, at least for this round. But after so many bad experiences, Peregrine was really left with a deep, deep dislike of vets, really a deep fear of what they were going to do. So cooperation was definitely not his middle name when it came to any medical procedure. And that's the horse that Dr. Nail first met when he came into the area. So it's been interesting to talk to Steve about him. He saw Peregrine as a young horse when his stifles were locking hard and fast, and I was struggling with all kinds of behavior issues that were a direct result of the stifles. And for those of you who aren't familiar with horse anatomy, the stifles are, are a horse's knee. They have the same general anatomy as our knee, but they're higher up in the leg. They're, they're right by the horse's belly. And there are three tendons that pass over the kneecap. And normally these tendons release so the horse can bend his leg. But in Peregrine's case, there were times when he wanted to take a step forward and the tendons would hang up over the kneecap. So he just could not bend his leg. And it was a nightmare. Horses with stifle problems tend to either rear or to blast forward to release the joint. Thankfully, Peregrine did not rear. That was not something he used as a way to release his stifles. But blasting forward? <laughs> that definitely worked for him, but not for me. So anyway, Steve met Peregrine when he was a challenging, difficult, and I have to say at times, dangerous young horse. And that's what makes this conversation all the more interesting because Steve saw Peregrine change. 
he saw his stifles resolve as we began to explore clicker training. And he saw Peregrine become what he was always trying to be, my beloved dance partner and my beloved teacher. So it was fun to swap Peregrine stories, but that's not really what this conversation is about. I wanted to look back with Steve over the changes that have occurred in veterinary medicine over the past 30, 40 years. It's interesting to think about procedures that were common when Peregrine was a foal that we just don't see anymore. You know, that Dominique, who's much newer to the horse world, there are some of these things that she's never even heard about, never mind seen. So last week we talked about deworming practices and the impact that the changes in what we have available to us uh, for, for deworming, the impact that's had on our horse's health. And this week, we're going to look back at another procedure, one that when I first encountered it, well, thankfully I've never actually seen it being done, but when I first encountered horses who had gone through this procedure, I just, I just could not believe what I was being told. This really truly did seem like something straight out of the dark ages. So enough of a teaser. Let's jump back into the conversation and see what it is that I'm talking about. So dark ages. So since this area, this is an area that has a lot of thoroughbred racing. And so a lot of the horses that I was seeing when I was really first beginning to look at horses more broadly, these, the thoroughbreds you'd often see had been pinfired. So, okay, I don't know what that is, Alex. I know. Okay. <laughs> I, that's why I thought I would bring it up. It's one of these medieval things. Uh. So, could, could you describe pin firing and was it, did it, was it effective? Does it, do, is it still done? Uh, very, very rarely anymore. But basically, in the, in the young uh, thoroughbred, um, you know, particularly some of these two, three year olds that are in training. The front of the cannon bone will start to remodel based on the based on the stress of of the bone, and so you'll start to get some thickening. And again, somebody may challenge me on some of the scientific part of this, but that's basically what goes on. That cannon bone is the bones responding to the stress that's being put under, and so that that bone begins to to kind of thicken up and remodel. And what you can get is I'm going to call them micro fractures, and that's probably being too simplistic. They're not the kind of fracture that's going to uh, threaten the life of the horse, but what they're going to do is they're going to cause shin pain. And it, it's kind of like uh, in young athletes, uh, you'll see in young kids many times, uh, particularly in that in the tibia and the shin bone, as they begin to uh, basketball players. Uh, were always uh, uh, prone to this, to where they would develop uh, pain in the shins. And so the same sorts of things were happening in the, in the uh, thoroughbred. So the pin fire was the use of, uh, of heat. Heat. Uh, uh, hot heat. 
basically through a, a well, we'll call it a pin, but there was the firing iron. And what was going on here was it was a what was a puncture through the skin into the outer part of the shin bone. And what they were looking to do was create an inflammatory response there that would cause the bone to heal or become stronger. Okay. And so there were a couple of methods that also went along with that. And I mean, I've never pin fired anybody and never had any desire to. Uh, there was also another thing called freeze firing yeah. in, in which uh, liquid nitrogen. It's still used. That's still used. Still used. Yeah, I've seen that. And there's another technique that came along using a, a, a big, a large bore needle uh, penetrated through the skin to the bone and basically scratched the bone instead of, of creating that, that pin fire. The other thing, Alexander, that went on with pin firing many times was after the application uh, of, the, uh, of the firing iron. And again, this was done in a pattern from below the knee. But then after they were fired that way, then many times they were blistered on top of it. Yeah. The application of the blister. And, you know, the old part of it was that the horse had to have time off. And so the argument was, you know, when, when it happened, did the response that you got, was it because of the, uh, of the inflammation that you caused or, or the rest? And, and uh, again, as another little story, I was in a, in a meeting, uh, CE meeting in Lexington a long, long, long time ago. And there was a panel up there about veterinary care on young thoroughbreds. And there were two very esteemed, nationally known thoroughbred equine veterinarians. And one was very pro-firing. The other one was very anti-firing. They're both sitting on the end of the panel. They got in this, and both of them probably weren't five, five, and, and they were both older gentlemen at that point. And they got in such an argument they both leaped up from their end of the table and they were going to meet in the middle of the stage and I think have a fist fight over the whole thing. And the moderator, he leaped practically over the lectern and gets in between the two of them. But, but that was how vehement some of this argument went on at times. And that was, you know, that was 45 years ago when, when pin firing was, was still somewhat in vogue at that point. Um, I, I remember seeing a lot of the thoroughbreds, and you just see that that line of scars down the legs. So you know what had happened, and we had. I remember uh, one that was in the barn that was being blistered. It just seemed it just seemed so so barbaric. Yeah, painful. So yeah, yeah so truly in the dark ages and. It's been a long time since I've seen, uh, and maybe I'm just not seeing enough thoroughbreds, but I'm not seeing the thoroughbreds with the pin firing marks. No, so I, I, I agree. And, and certainly the, the, the whole thing of the blister, um, you know, because many of those contained mercury, they contained a lot of things now that, that you just can't 
you know, you just, they're not on the market anymore because of the toxicity in quotation marks. And I think the other thing too, the application of a blister uh, and done properly was an art. And those, those old horsemen are gone. And thank goodness, but uh, many of the younger people have never seen it or those that are going to try it, they, they have no clue of how to really apply it and do it, and do it properly. And I think too, as imaging techniques, we'll go down one, the rabbit trail here. One thing that I was going to say that has helped extend the usability of, of our horses has been the improvement in the, in the imaging. Uh, you know, I, I think with the application of ultrasound, you know, you, you could guess that maybe there was an issue there at the high suspensory, but you couldn't really prove it. You know, your fingertips couldn't see in there. They might tell you there's some pain, but I think a lot of times when you saw those blisters and some of the, the pin firing or freeze firing that you went on and you looked at, you know, you look at the area uh, of, of where it was applied, you know, I, I think back on some of those, I think, yeah, you know, what was really probably going on there was a proximal suspensory. It really wasn't a hock problem, but the area that everything was applied got the hock and the proximal suspensory too. So as, as we've had these imaging techniques come along, we've been able to identify what the structures are that are involved. And we've been able to apply other techniques that aren't as extreme, and then also couple that with rehabilitation uh, techniques as well, and better podiatry. And, and, and so I think we've, we've gotten away from the pin fire. And I think that's one reason why you don't, you just don't see it. Because that, that was going to be exactly where my question was going to take us, because, you know, that seemed to me to be, the pin firing seems to be sort of in the dark ages of lameness treatments, lameness diagnosis, and that the changes in x-rays, the portable ultrasounds and so on, have really radically changed what you can diagnose. And that must have been really quite astounding over the decades to be able to see so much more inside the horses. Oh my gosh. And you know, what it got, got down to, I mean, when it first came out, we used to uh, say to ourselves, you know, are you seeing too much? You know, you, you yeah. could see some of these subtle changes, but what did it mean? Exactly. You know? you know, I remember some vehement conversations between our people at Cavalia when we were buying horses. Yes. Because, you know, some of them, we were asking for x-rays and imaging we wanted to see before we bought, but some of our really good trainers, some of the French trainers would say, look, you're going to see all kinds of things. I will tell you with my two hands, looking at the horse move. And, you know, because if you start to look at the X, all the imaging, you will see so many different things. And it doesn't mean this isn't a good horse that can do a good right. job. So it's not easy. There's a lot of images coming out now, but you still have to interpret it and try to really identify where the real problems are versus where it's just, and do you say artifact in English? Is this a word? <laughs> yes, artifact. Like, you know, yes. when we when we do x-rays of our own 
um, how do you say the the our colon vertebral or um, of our back spine yeah. of our, yeah, our yeah. spine. There's all kinds of things we're going to see that are not perfect, but it doesn't mean that you're necessarily in pain or that you have. A, so it's it's an art to interpret all those images coming out, isn't it? Oh, it is. And, and you have to put it in the context of, of what you see on the horse on that on that day. And, you know, I, I, I still, we at Oakencroft, we, we got a lot of externs. So they would be second, third, uh, fourth year uh, students would come in and spend some time with us. And, you know, I would say to them, you know, when I was in vet school, uh, we were still hand dipping, hand dipping x-rays to develop, you know, we don't have these, all these automatic process. I can remember the first automatic processor I ever saw in a small animal clinic and it was about the size of a Volkswagen, you know, the process one film was this huge, huge issue. And now then we have instant gratification and, and certainly have detail that we've not ever had before and you you do have to put it in the context of, of what the horse is trying to tell you and what some of your experience is and and i used to uh i deliberately at times maybe you don't want to put this on the podcast but, but i i i i had this one an excellent lameness veterinarian excellent and she was all the time picking these x-rays apart and every little thing. And I'd come in and I'd look over her shoulder and the thing I'd say to her would be, he ain't much of a horse if that's bothering <laughs> And then I'd turn around and run because she would be ready to, ready to strangle me. But my message to her would be, you know, put this in the context of what your examination is telling you. Because you're going to see, like you said there, Dominique, you're going to see a lot of things many times, and what does it really mean? And that can be an extremely difficult way to interpret. When I was in vet school, everything was spavin in the hot. Everything was navicular in the front. Because that's what you could see. You could be suspicious that there was problem in the empire ligament in the navicular. You could be suspicious that there was maybe a, a, a proximal suspensory uh, pain, but you couldn't prove it because we didn't have any way to truly image it. Mm -hmm. And then come along, as you pointed out, Alexander, and the ultrasound and, uh, and, the, and the digital radiography have, have given us the tools to, uh, to maybe find things that we can truly hang our hats on. Uh, and I would, and I'm going to say one other thing too about lameness. And uh, I think over the years, the uh, cooperation uh, between uh, veterinarian and the farrier has improved exponentially. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly, there can still be the conflicts between the two professions, but there's been uh, so much good come out of the collaboration mm -hmm. uh, between barrier and uh, the veterinarian and uh, from both professions a far better understanding of what each one of us does but also a far better understanding of what the mechanics of the foot happens to be and and how to how to help that how to help that horse uh, reach his, his optimal or come close to his optimal performance 
and I think that's been a huge change in keeping these horses uh, uh, usable. Again, it's just been a huge stride. Because we've had many, many conversations around the the feet and the farriers and the the role that the two of you need to play together to help our our horses. And certainly over that span of time in which you were in practice, the we'll call it the barefoot movement arose. And that was has been I, I think that's had a profound effect, uh, impact on the horses. But it also was at times, certainly for the farriers, very controversial because it was seen as a movement and not as an educational process of learning more about feet. Well, I, you know, there's a saying which I believe Andy Park, who's a, a veterinarian who's I think he's at the University of Georgia. And Dr. Park has, has done a lot of research in the mechanics of the foot. And, you know, he he has a favorite saying, it's in the trim, stupid. And 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 he's he's right. And I don't, you know, in my mind, you can call it barefoot, you can call it whatever, but it starts with a good trim. Mm-hmm starts with many times having well so and I, and I think I think both the veterinarian and the farrier if there's been anything that's happened is it's not just looking at that foot but look at the whole horse look at his anatomy look at what the influence of that anatomy is on the foot looking at where there needs to be corrections and many times it's, it's subtle. So a good trim is where it starts. And whether you're going to call it a barefoot, whatever you, well, I always used to say, somebody said, oh, you know, my horse got a barefoot trim. And I would say, you know, I never saw a horse that got his foot trimmed that wasn't barefoot. So what, what, are, you, what, are, you, what are you trying to tell me here? And I think where we got into part of the controversy, what, maybe 30 years ago, when this whole barefoot thing kind of blew up out of Germany or wherever it came from, uh, the lady that, that put it forward, she tried to almost make it a religion. And the problem that we got into was that when you followed it to her extreme, the mechanics of what she was doing was detrimental to the horse. Mm-hmm. Uh, mechanics just did not work out. Now, it's like anything else in, in the world. You can get away with a lot of bad things sometimes and it doesn't bite you in the rear end for a while. But the longer you go on with an erroneous belief in the pursuit of something as a bad trim in a horse, you're eventually going to get, eventually going to get in trouble. And I've, I've seen a lot of lamenesses go away once the horse began to get into a proper trim and you began to restore the balance in the foot that he really needed. And, uh, you know, you could, you could, have all throw all kinds of therapeutics at that horse, 
but until you corrected what was going on in the foot, you weren't going to get anywhere. Many times you weren't even treading water, you were going to go backwards. So it does start in the trim and understanding what a good trim looks like. So that's that's my view from the from the pulpit, so to speak. Which means I, I should ask in general terms, what does a good trim look like? So when you walk in and you're there to do vaccinations or you're meeting the horse for the first time, I'm sure your eye goes down to their feet. Uh, what are some of the key points that you're assessing? Well, probably the thing that jumps out to me first is, is the hook pastern angle. I mean, you've got to put all these things together, but the hook pastern angle, you know, am I upright? The tendency is to be broken back. In other words, I've got a long toe. Where's, I've got a long toe, low heel. Where are my heels in relationship to the widest part of the frog? You know, do I have flares? Uh, how does that foot interact with the uh, the anatomy? You know, if he's if he's pigeon toed, uh, which is interesting to me, and I talked with several farriers of that. If you read, which I have one of probably the first copies of Adam's uh, Lameness and the Horse, which was the Bible for a long time, and and he states in there that that a pigeon-toed horse is fairly uncommon. Oh my gosh, you know that's about all you see anymore. Is so many horses become pigeon-toed, we bred it into them. Uh, so using the hoof pastern angle from the front, looking at the balance, uh, medial to lateral, looking at the flares, pick up the foot, uh, take a look at, at the health of the frog. You know, do I have chronic thrush? But particularly, where it, where are my heels in relationship to the widest part of the frog? And that's probably where that's that's usually where I would start uh, with them. And you know, many times it's only a few as, as you and I've talked about. It's only a few strokes of the rasp yeah. put that foot where it belongs, and. Uh, and I also understand why, particularly if you've got a foot that needs a lot of, of work done and you have to be careful in that the horse maybe needs to adjust uh, to what you're doing. And, and you, many times you can't because the foot's grown out to a point you can't, you can't do everything at once. You've got to do it over a period of time. And uh, I also understand you know, I had more than one farrier say to me, you know, Doc, if I go any further, I'm going to draw blood. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to them, if they draw blood, owner's going to crucify him. Yeah. You know, for me, eh, you know, Doc, you made him bleed again, kind of a thing. So I used to tell the farrier, you know, keep keep going if we get to blood, it's my fault. It's not your fault. With Keep going. Keep going. You know, you've got a little more you can do here. Keep, keep going. One, one of the fairies used to say to me, yeah, 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 I know. Keep going. Keep going. And, uh, but again, many times it's just a, it's just a few more strokes of the rasp. Mm -hmm. not, it's not anything uh, over the top or dramatic. And again, podiatry, in my mind, is amazed because I got a little smarter over time. 
but uh, I think it's it's advanced uh, so much. Uh, but then again, podiatry, if you don't start with that good trim, it doesn't make any difference than what kind of fancy shoe you pull out of the pull out of the trunk. Yeah. If you if you don't have a good trim, then you're not going to get anywhere with it. And the thing that I always worked for, and I and I heard uh, Dr. Steve O'Grady, who's well known in the, the farrier and the veterinary world, and, and uh, worked on hundreds of horses, the high end, low end, all in between. And, and we had him at Oakencroft. Uh, we used to do a farrier and veterinarians conference. And you know the thing that I like Steve said when it came to the demo time. He said, I want to show you how to correct these things with what you have in your truck today. That you don't need to go out and buy somebody's fancy shoe in order to uh, work on the problem that's presented to you. And that, that's always stuck with me because once you start to say the owner, yeah, you know, this and that shoe, and that shoe is going to cost you this much money and that sort of thing. But, and the farriers may not work with that shoe in the past. Mm -hmm. Go in the truck and he can, and you can find him a shoe that he commonly works with. And he's got the confidence that he can, that he can shoe that horse. And, and one other thing, while I'm on my pulpit here, <laughs> I think the other the other issue that we get into, and I understand because I've owned horses too, is the cost of the farrier. And when you start telling somebody, you know, this guy, this horse needs to be worked on every four or five weeks instead of every eight to 12, <laughs> yes. you know. Yes. And then they start calculating the, the cost. But, you know, the, the farrier... And I always said this to the owner, I've never met a farrier that intentionally set out to do a bad job. And I never met a farrier that could overcome you as owner, your bad habits of giving, of giving him a too long of an interval, not listening to him, and then not taking care of those feet, getting rid of the thrush and that sort of thing. He can only do what he can do. You've got to help us. And part of that is that you've got to shorten up your your trim cycle with it because you're just not going to get anywhere with it. And uh, I don't, I do not envy the job the farrier has to no. do. No. So you no. you recommend five weeks? Well, I think you, you need to look at the individual horse, and I understand the problem you've got. You know, like if you've got three horses. And, and one of them needs to be on a five-week cycle, and the other two can get by with six plus, then how many trips does a farrier who's, you know, responsible for another 200 head around in the neighborhood, you know, where is he going to work your schedule in? So I understand part of the trap that you get into. But, you know, you have to look at that horse and the individual problem that you're but as a, a general rule, you would favor five week year round, uh, or do you find that sometimes the winter is different than the summer? Well, I do think that there is some lack of growth maybe in the winter time uh, with them. But then again, if you're working on a problem horse, 
you know, the, the issue that you get into, uh, I think, is that when, at least in our part of the country, and where it's so wet uh, for most of the year, and that the toe will tend to grow faster than the heel will. And so what you get into is that I'm working to back my toes up, get my hoof faster and angle better. I'm working to, 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 to make this horse stand up better. Well, now then what happens to him is he begins that toe elongates fairly quickly and it pulls those heels forward. So you start, to, you lose you lose what you've been trying to gain. And if you go too long, what you get into me is like you got to get into a push-pull kind of a situation. In other words, I pulled my, my heels and my toes back. But now then if I've gone too long and I've, and I've allowed that foot to grow out, so now my foot goes back to where it originally happened to be if you've gone too long a cycle. So it's kind of like I stick my foot forward, I trim the foot, it pulls back. My foot grows out; it comes forward. So if you don't, if you don't have a cycle where you can at least keep that foot from going uh, too far forward, then you can begin to gain on gain on your problem. But, uh, does that explanation make make sense? <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Trying, trying trying to draw draw a picture. My cat's back here too. So. <laughs> she, um, she she persisted. Can we talk about vaccines, a subject we hear a lot about? You know, in the dog world, I've seen the vaccine protocols revisited by the profession on a few occasions over the past few years. I have not seen that so much in the horse world. We still vaccinate pretty much what we were doing 15 years ago. Why is that? And we don't run titers generally. No, we don't. Here's my take on it. And again, if I put 100 veterinarians in a room, you're going to get 100 different opinions. We certainly know a lot more about the horse's immune system than we ever have. The problem that you get into with measuring vaccinations and titers and that sort of thing is that the horse, for some reason, his immunology uh, seems to differ from the standpoint that when you're vaccinating, the titer can be unreliable. I mean, that's the best way to put it. As, as a measure of, there's my cat. <laughs> that, that, that's Chips, by the way. He's very pretty. He is. Oh, and he's very he's, affectionate, too. Uh, I, there's a long story on how I inherited chips, but let's just put it that I inherited her from my daughter, and I'll leave it at that. But anyway, the dog, the measurement of the titers seems to be reliable. In the horse, it's the techniques of measuring uh, titers and response to vaccinations has gotten a lot more sophisticated but it's not to the point that you can predict it as much as, as you can in the dog. And I suspect that you're right. We could probably get to the point of where we could, where we could spread those out. Yes, you're, 
I, I think you're just going to have to give her some attention. <laughs> I, I, well, the only problem, I, a little bit of a story, she is so jealous of our dog and her other cat. And so, you know, when she gets a chance, she's going to be hanging around. So the, the tiger, the tiger's other than me for tetanus, uh, what else out there? Maybe encephalomyelitis. They seem like they can be fairly reliable. Uh, but the others, there's a big question on uh, how reliable uh, the titer is. In other words, you could, you could run a titer for uh, influenza that might come up negative. But again, there's a big difference between antibodies and T cells and all these other things that play a role in an immune response. You might have a negative titer, but expose that horse to the influenza virus and boom, he responds to it and has protection from other sources in the immune system. Things that just economically are not feasible uh, to measure. And I do think that that is a little bit of an issue here is that if you look at the economy of, of what the equine market is, you know, it's a small enough player in the, in the overall world of animal health, it just simply doesn't get uh, the research dollars. It's, it's, not, it's not something that uh, seems to draw a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. And I think too, that when you, when you look at how we keep horses a lot of times where they're in large congregations, the whole vaccination issue, I've always felt like that I, if I've got a vaccine that's effective, uh, I want to use it in, in a group of horses. I'd, I'd rather prevent it than treat it, let's put it that way. Yes. So you and don't feel we're over-vaccinating? You know what? I had a standard bred farm that unfortunately the, the owner finally aged out and you know they 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 don't but we had oh we probably had 40 horses there most of the time and years and years ago there was a study that on uh, rhinopneumonitis and influenza that said that the optimal was to vaccinate every eight weeks. Oh. And, the owner, and the owner said, you know what, that's what I want. And we vaccinated, I would say, for 10 years, we vaccinated everything on that farm every eight weeks. We, if I tell you what, we never had a cough in any of the yearlings. We never had anything get sick. I never saw anything like a vaccine reaction with them. Uh, saw absolutely no... Uh, problems at all, and you know we had we had some horses that were were there from the time they were born till the time they died. Were you still vaccinating to the same frequency when they got really old, or do you feel that at some point their immune system has enough memory and enough? Um, I don't know how to say it, but you vaccinate at the same frequency even if it's a twenty-eight-year-old horse. Definitely, oh, yeah. definitely, because I, I think there's enough compelling evidence that shows uh, that the immune system actually does weaken 
in those, similar to what happens in people. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that immune response, you know, they've been vaccinated a lot, that, that vaccine, uh, that immune memory uh, can be compromised. So yes, you, you don't, just because that horse is 28, you, you don't want to skip those vaccinations. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll go back to titers real quick. Rabies titers are probably spot on. The issue you have is that uh, public health won't recognize them. So, you know, if, if you, you can probably now work your way around, but I would say, what was it, Alexander, can you remember, you know, what, 20 years ago or so, we had that big surge into raccoon rabies. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, we had some horses that, that, that got exposed to rabid raccoons and they, the horses have not been vaccinated in a long time. Titers showed what was probably uh, an adequate protection, but, you know, uh, public health said, you know, we don't recognize it because there's not enough proof that, that it is valid. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but guess what? Your horse is going to go in quarantine for six months. Mm -hmm. That attitude's changed a little bit, but rabies is mm -hmm. one of those. Rabies that, is serious. Yes. Yeah. So the list of things that we vaccinate for seems it's just so long. And one of them now is Lyme's disease. And so that would be another thing that has emerged. It's not a very good vaccine, the Lyme vaccine. Well, for the dogs anyway. You vaccinate your horse for the Lyme disease? It's not so much that is the question, uh, but is there or isn't there Lyme disease in horses? Well, it's controversial. Yep. You know, I I do think that, well, I've 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 fought that question <laughs> question for for thirty for thirty. 30 years or whenever it first emerged, you know, I don't, I don't personally don't believe that Lyme disease in horses as widespread as people would want to believe. If you can accept what the Cornell uh, antigen test shows, more often than not, uh, when people swore up and down their horse had Lyme disease, the, uh, uh, the antigen test would not bear that out. Because Lyme, Lyme is a great imitator, you know, uh, sore back, sore feet, those sorts of things. And, you know, I would just assume maybe wrap my fingers around my horse having Lyme disease and I could treat him with doxycycline and be over with and have a diagnosis made that he's making up proximal suspensory. He's got kissing spines. My saddle doesn't fit, and I don't know how to ride <laughs> kind of thing. Are you sleep deprived? Uh, you know, uh, so Lyme is out there, but I'm not sure that it's a, a high percentage as far as clinical disease goes. Vaccination is somewhat controversial. You know, we at Oak and Croft had vaccinated a limited number of horses. The problem you have with that vaccine is that once you, even once you go past your uh, initial vaccination, you've got to be sure that you've boosted every six months. 
think that's what the data shows. I thought it was uh, even less than that. Uh, it just depends on whose protocol that's <laughs> swimming around out there. I've seen it be as short as every three. And I've seen, you know, one of the vaccine manufacturers did a study with their vaccination. And uh, what they did do, which I thought was not too cool, <laughs> Was was that they used a a double dose? They could show a decent response. I mean, to one vial, but then they ran the other trial using two vials. So now, then, what you've done is, and and it showed an even better response, which you would expect. But now, then, which which you're going to recommend if you're going to get it licensed? And if you're going to go with a two-vial system, you're essentially going to double your cost. And then what's what's the resistance going to be on the horse owners? Yeah, kind of thing. The interesting part about Lyme, and, and it hasn't it hasn't emerged yet. Uh, one of the big manufacturers, last I heard, and I haven't talked to this gentleman who's one of their tech service people for for a while, but they were in the midst of a pretty good long-term study uh, looking at the line. And the thing that, that had gotten their attention was they'd been able to identify something like nine different variants. And so that it kind of rocked them back on their heels a little bit uh, as to you know, what produces disease, what doesn't. Uh, if we're going to try to develop a vaccination, you know, what 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 are we going to pursue here? And uh, I think that the problem again you've got in the horse world now is that in the total scope of the animal health industry, we're a pretty small segment. Mm -hmm. It's hard to get the investment in the, in these things. Hmm. Look at pretty hard as to what what's what's the return going to be, and that you know that's the way in the world. So as of now, what would you recommend to a horse owner in terms of annual vaccines or two times a year vaccine? What do they have to at least do as a minimum? Well, I think I think your your core, and if you look at the AAP recommendations, I, I think I think your core needs to be your rabies needs to be your eastern western tetanus and uh, your west nile and then the and, and the west nile to me is a remarkable vaccination it's proven to be a hundred percent protective as long as you you know you, you don't go 18 months between your vaccinations as long as you follow that so i think that that's 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 a core now, if you start throwing risk factors that you're out competing, you're going to get, you know, you're in a boarding stable, you've got some place where something like influenza and rhinopneumonitis can show up, then I think your, your flu rhino and, and uh, at least twice a year. Uh, again, if you're in a high risk situation, uh, strangles is, uh, is, is a good idea. Uh, I've dealt with strangles enough times and seeing it cripple. Oh, really? Uh, 
oh my gosh, you know, I've seen barns lose a whole show season because it just, it, it can go on and on and on. So a high risk is if you're going out with your horse or there's a boarding situation where there's a lot of turnover, right. new horses are coming in. Right. And I, I think strangles, you know, if, if you're, and maybe we don't get it as much as we, I tell you, when I, when, when I first started in practice to where there were a lot of horses, replacement horses came from the sale barn. You know, people sold their horse in the fall because they didn't want to overwinter it. They bought a horse in the spring. And so you co-mingled at a sale, three, 400 horses. Somebody's going to have strangles, mm -hmm. you know, and they, would, and they would bring it, they would bring it home. That's a high risk situation so again if you're in a barn where there's a high turnover if you've got somebody who's got the horse out of one of these fake rescues that's out there from a sale barn you know that's that's a situation now if you're in a high-end barn to where the, the background's pretty well known on those horses then you're probably pretty well safe but you know, if you're, you're in a situation, again, with a high turnover and horses can be coming from a sketchy situation, I think it's, it's good. Potomac horse fever is somewhat controversial in how good is the immunity, but being in a, essentially in an endemic area, and, yes. as, and as, as Alexander can attest, I do think that that vaccinated horse at least if he gets it, he doesn't seem to get as sick. He's not as likely to founder. What is the region for Potomac fever? Well, in our area, uh, if you are in a fairly wet area that's subject to a lot of insect activity, you're going to be at risk. And for the area that, that I tended to work, or even to look at Oakencroft, it, over here, there was along the Kinderhook Creek was always an area. There was a farm uh, down the valley, down the Gant area. I mean, you, you, you start to kind of know the geography, but when you look at the geography, there was a lot of wet. You know, there were some fairly big streams. There were some wetlands. Saratoga could be some wet areas up in there. I mean, poorly drained, let's put it that way. Mm. Uh, our practice to the west because um, we covered a big geography uh, areas over in the Albany County uh, uh, where there, there tended to be a lot of wetland and that sort of thing. Uh, so, you know, we, we could identify some geographical areas and say to the owner, you know, this is something you want to keep up on. Berkshire County, for whatever reason, there's a lot of wet areas over in there. Over the years, I rarely saw a case of Potomac horse fever. I saw a few, but it always surprised me that uh, uh, given the amount of wet area that was over there that we had so few. So, uh, so I, I know when we set up the pastures for the new barn that I had that very much in mind in terms of where the fence line stopped because mm -hmm. I did not want the horses going down into the lower section where they were getting closer to the ponds and the, the areas with poor drainage. Mm -hmm. So I definitely kept that in mind. 
So, if you still have the stamina for another rabbit hole. <laughs> um, so, digestion. You know what that music means. I'm going to stop us here. I'm about to say we've learned so much about the horse's digestive system over the last couple of decades. But I'm going to make you wait until next time to find out what Dr. Nail has to say about how we feed, what we feed, when we feed our horses. So thank you for listening and have fun with your horses.